Our Father, we come in the name of your Son, who has granted to us life eternal, as we have received the faith that you have uh, brought into this world through his death and resurrection and through the working of your Spirit in our hearts. We're grateful, Lord, for what you have done for each of us individually, what you've done for this church as a body of Christ. And we ask, Lord, that this morning you will be with us here today, that you will direct our thoughts and words, that you will guide us in our study of this particular passage this morning. We're grateful for the man Moses and the example that he is to us and how you've used him to teach us many truths uh, that we need to know in order to live faithfully before you. Lord, I pray again, as we have prayed so many times, that as we hear the word, we will not just be hearers only, but that we will take the word and apply it to our lives, and it will be a light unto our path. Bless, Lord, throughout our Sunday school this morning. Bless in the service that is going on concurrently in Christ's name. Amen. You'll turn to the 18th chapter of Exodus, Exodus chapter 18. I'll begin reading at verse 1. We'll read the first 12 verses. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. How the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Moses' wife, Zipporah, after he had sent her away, and her two sons, of whom one was named Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was camped at the mountain of God. And he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Then Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other their welfare and went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had befallen them on the journey, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh, and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. Well, I think for that passage, it's quite clear who Jethro was. He's referred to multiple times as Moses' father-in-law. And so I think we get the point here as to whom is coming to visit with Moses. It's kind of interesting as uh, we looked uh, last time, last chapter dealt with the battle of the Amalekites against the Israelites, that uh, if you remember, the Amalekites were the descendants of Abraham through Esau. Now the Midianites, whom Jethro represents, were descendants of Abraham through his second wife, Keturah. Remember, 
uh, after Sarah died, Abraham remarried, and Abraham had six sons by his second wife. And <laughs> that's kind of interesting, you remember, when we talked about that. Well, maybe you weren't here when we were dealing with Genesis, but most of you were. Remember, Abraham was 100 <laughs> when Isaac was born, and that was thought to be really, really old. You know, and, and uh, then he goes on and lives many, many more years, and he gets married a second time and has six more sons. I mean, one of them was Midian. They were cousins of Israel. The, Midian, the Midian, Midianites and the Amalekites are cousins of Israel. And you'll notice how the cousins meet rather differently, huh? The Amalekites attacked Israel, and there was this great war, and we read about it last time and Moses' hands being lifted up unto God with the help of Aaron and Hur, and the Amalekites were defeated, and God put a curse on the Amalekites that they were ultimately to be destroyed. But the Midianites meet Israel at this moment anyway a little bit differently. They come in peace through the person of Jethro. I think we're all pretty well aware of the fact, though, the Midianites later do become a real problem, especially during the time of the Judges, and there will be war between Israel and Midian. But for now, they come in peace, primarily because Jethro was Moses' father-in-law. It's also interesting that as we, we read that passage, it said in verse 1 that Jethro was coming because he had heard of all that God had done for Moses and Israel. And I suppose this helps us to understand that although there was no television, you know, no nightly CNN news to broadcast on the spot, Somehow the word was being carried through the Bedouin chain of uh, information in those days uh, so that Jethro, although he was hundreds of miles away from all the events that were transpiring, was hearing what was going on between the Egyptians and the Israelites in the Exodus. So he travels 150 miles approximately from his a land which was over the top of the uh, Gulf of Aqaba over into the Arabian area, come over the top and then down the uh, east side of the Sinai Peninsula to meet Moses near Mount Sinai. So obviously he had the word that that was where Moses was headed. And so he knew where to go. Now certainly this was not an unfamiliar place to Jethro because when Moses was herding Jethro's sheep, Moses was herding those sheep clear down there at Mount Sinai. And why did he go down there? Probably because Jethro had told him that that's a good place to pasture the sheep, or at least moving down in that direction. So the question is, why does Jethro make this trip all the way down to Mount Sinai to visit Moses? Well, the passage gives us two reasons. One was to bring with him Moses' wife, and Moses' two sons. Remember, they had started out the journey with Moses on the way to Egypt. But after a fairly short period of time, Moses had sent them back to Jethro, partly because I'm sure he felt that they would be a hindrance to him in the, in the difficult work that was ahead, and because there had been a bit of strife between him and his wife, if you remember, concerning the circumcision of their, eldest, of their youngest son. Probably Jethro felt that the most difficult part of the journey was over, of the Exodus. And so now Moses would probably appreciate the companionship of his wife and of his sons. I think probably in Jethro's mind also was the belief that it was very, very important for Moses' two sons 
to witness what God was doing through their father. Jethro, of course, knew nothing about what the future would be of the two boys, uh, what God would use them for, but certainly they needed to see what God was doing through their father, and so he brought them to Moses. And then secondly, the passage tells us that Jethro came so that he might witness firsthand, not just by Bedouin communications, but firsthand what God was doing for Moses, through, for Israel through Moses. And so he came to talk with Moses and to see what was happening with his own eyes. I think we have to always picture this in light of what isn't really explained here. Jethro came with his daughter and two grandsons to see Moses. I don't think that was a caravan of four people. Jethro was a Midianite chief, a clan leader. And so probably when he made the journey, it was with a fairly significant number of armed escort. It was always a, a very dangerous area to travel through that part of the world, through most of history, because of the various Bedouin tribes that hated each other and were often in conflict, and attacks which were made for the purpose of ripping off one another. And so certainly he traveled with a significant retinue as he came to see Moses. Now we find in this passage, particularly verses 9 through 12, the last few verses we read of the passage, um, something I think which opens your eyes just a little bit more as to who Jethro was. We already knew that he was a priest. We'd read that earlier when Moses first came into contact with Jethro. And that he knew Yahweh. But I think from this passage, we can assume that he was not a priest under Yah unto Yahweh alone. It seems to be implied here that he knew Yahweh was God, but there seemed to be other gods too, as far as he was concerned. Because as we read in this passage, he says in verse 11, Now I know that the Lord is, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. It sounds as if he finally has arrived at the place of recognizing that although he may have considered Yahweh to be a god among several gods, that Yahweh is the god, and that all other gods are virtually non-gods in relationship to Yahweh. Yahweh is the true god. And it seems that he seals this understanding by offering a burnt offering here, a sacrifice. And he does it under the authority of Moses and Aaron, whom he sees as, as God's true priests and ministers at this particular time. And I think he is not exalting himself to equality, but is actually acting in submission to Moses and to Aaron as he brings the burnt offering and the sacrifices to God. And this would be, of course, I think, very understandable within the framework of what we understand about the Old Testament up to this point in time. Jethro would have been someone who was the clan chief, but also what we might call the shaman, the shaman of, of his tribe. And he certainly knew of Yahweh because that was part of his heritage. But the other gods were important to him too, probably, as he lived the Bedouin existence. And now, because of all that is heard, and it says in that last part of that verse, because it was proven 
when they dealt proudly against the people. In other words, when the Egyptian gods tried through the Egyptians to hold the Israelites there and God smashed them and, and uh, rendered them powerless. And that was made so clear in the ten plagues. Verse 13. It came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood about Moses from morning until evening. Now when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge? And all the people stand about you from morning until evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his neighbor to make known the statutes of God and his laws. And Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you're doing is not good. You will surely wear out, both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me. I shall give you counsel, and God be with you. You be the people's representative before God, and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and the laws, and make known to them the way in which they are to walk, and the work they are to do. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain. You shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Let them be, let it be, that every major dispute which they bring to you, they will bring to you. And every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people also will go to their place in peace. Well, Jethro went with Moses on his daily rounds. See what Moses' life was like each day. And so he went out and sat with Moses as Moses went through his daily task of sitting and waiting for this endless line of people to come and bring to the, him their complaints. Moses was counseling Moses was instructing, he was arbitrating, he was rendering justice to this whole horde of people. I mean, he was chief judge, magistrate, and everything else you can think of here, chief priest to this whole nation of people. They had no one else to turn to. Who else could they go to for the wisdom, the arbitration, the justice? And I think as Jethro looked out over this camp, I mean, these people are camped here in this area, and they're spread out like a sea in front of him. And he looked over this camp, and he, he probably put his hands on his head and said, Moses, you can't do this. You cannot carry this load alone. You can't be chief priest, chief judge, and, and chief teacher, and chief everything to this whole crowd of people all by yourself. Now Jethro knew that the task was impossible. And he knew that if Moses kept trying to do it, Moses would burn out. It's a favorite term we have nowadays. We talk a lot about pastor burnout or whatever burnout. And it's a real thing. And Jethro knew that this would happen to Moses if Moses continued to try to follow this program. Now 
how does Jethro know? Well, Jethro is himself clan chief. He's a person who sits in a similar position to his people as Moses does to Israel, except his people aren't as numerous, apparently, at this time anyway, or at least the portion of the Midianites that he was living amongst as Israel. But he already knew that you couldn't do it all alone. And apparently he had set up kind of a hierarchy uh, whereby the administration would be carried out amongst his people. And so he says to Moses, let me give you some wise counsel, something that comes from my own experience and I trust also comes from the mind of God. He said, if you get some help, not only will you be relieved and not only will you be protected from burnout, but these people will be relieved and these people will be helped. Can you imagine how frustrating it must have been to have this problem. You know, you've got this conflict going on between you and your neighbor and, and you've got to get it settled and you go to see Moses and there's a line that's one half mile long <laughs> waiting to get up to, to speak to Moses. And so you get in this line, you know, and oh man, it could go on for days and days and days because it wasn't a matter of just running up and turning in your number and Moses saying, oh, I'll do this and off you go. You know, he had to listen to every dispute and consider both sides and he had to teach those who needed teaching and give instruction to those who needed counsel. And so it was a very a long, interminable, terminable, it would seem, uh, process that he had to, um, to face. And Jethro is implying here that probably some became so frustrated over the fact that the line was so long and they waited so long that they just went out and took justice into their own hands. And uh, that might even be implied here in verse 23 where it says, um, if you will do this thing God and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, endure. And all these people also will go to their place in peace. They will go to their place in peace, in, in, you know, with shalom, indicating that wholeness will be there rather than maybe not happening as it was transpiring at that time. Well, when you look, about, look at this, Jethro's counsel is very, very wise, and it's very simple, too. It's not, not a complex or profound thing here. He basically is telling Moses to do two things. First of all, Moses, you be the ombudsman, the person that stands between God and the people, represents the people to God. You will go to God in prayer for the needs of the people, for the disputes that they have. You will be their prayer warrior, and then you will teach the word of God to the people. This is what your task is to be. Then secondly, all of this other work has to be carried out by selecting persons to sit in kind of a pyramid here of, of uh, work, power, authority, whatever you want to call it, and distribute the workload amongst these other people. Select elders to serve in carrying out the tasks of the church, uh, of what Moses was doing here. <laughs> that, that's one of the reasons the church has multiple elders, or churches are supposed to have multiple elders so that the spiritual leadership is not all in one person, but is spread amongst many, and uh, the load can be more easily borne that way. Moses was thus to be the intercessor and the preacher-teacher of the congregation of Israel. Selected elders 
were then to carry on much of the work that he was doing daily, that was taking up so much of his time and strength, and which was pushing him to the brink whether he knew it or not. People were to be selected who were wise, who were godly, who were honest, who were truth-seeking. Boy, when you think about that, godly, wise, honest, truth-seeking, those are pretty tough uh, requirements, but they're absolutely essential to carry out the task of counseling these people, instructing these people, telling them what Moses has said, God has said, and arbitrating in the various disputes that came to them. Only the major disputes, only those problems that seemed insoluble to the people who were under Moses should come to Moses himself, and that Moses would then carry these to God and deal with this. Well, to me, as I was studying this, a very parallel passage came to mind. I'd like to go to the sixth chapter of Acts. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, you have to remember that the early church, in many of its aspects, was communal. Not necessarily communal in that they all lived together in one big group, but they met often communally and to worship together communally. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. But select among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles. And after praying, they laid hands on them. And notice verse 7. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. The church was proving the validity of the word by living it out every day. Those who came to faith weren't just said, told to be warmed and be filled and go home. They were helped. They were ministered to. And apparently the disciples themselves were doing a lot of the physical work of seeing that the food was being distributed amongst the people, those who were needy uh, in, in this group. Now, remembering, it's one of the most profound things about the growth of the early church was that it didn't really bust out at the upper levels of society, but it was a grassroots faith. It spread amongst the poor and amongst the needy and amongst the slaves of the Roman Empire. And that was one of the reasons why men of the upper class wouldn't even accept Christianity. They had nothing to do with Christianity because it seemed to be the faith of the poor. It was the faith of slaves, and if it was the faith of theirs, why, obviously, it wasn't worthy of, of me as, as emperor or, of, or governor of some province or something. 
Many of the people who were brought into the faith were people who had nothing. And, and we already know that uh, because Barnabas sold some, you know, gave some money to the church from some property, and then Ananias and Sapphira <laughs> attempted to do the same thing, only with wrong motivations in their heart, uh, that this was done in order to help to provide for those in need. And the example of love, of the love of God being worked out in the actual ministry to the needs of the people, was what was, what was one of the things God was using to draw people by the hundreds and by the thousands into the church. People saw how the disciples really did love one another. Because obviously, when you talk to a Pharisee, his love was basically missing. <laughs> he knew how to tell you how you ought to be like he was, but not to really love an individual. And so they saw the real love of God here. But it's really important, I think, for any church, meaning the local body of believers, that they have leadership that is committed, as Moses was instructed by Jethro here, to be committed to prayer and to study of God's Word. And if the leadership is spinning its wheels and spending its time going out and trying to do other things to minister to the congregation, then the congregation is being shortchanged on what is the most important thing for the congregation. And that is the intercession, intercession before God and, and the teaching of the Word of God. You probably all know the fact that, you know, especially in America, there have been many periods in our history, and it still is going on today, where the pastor of the church has to be the one who visits everybody, who has to paint the church and mow the lawn and vacuum the church, and that is a crime. I mean, a congregation, how big does it have to be for somebody else to do some of those things? They hire the pastor to be everything, you know, a jack of all trades, and he turns out to be a master of none. And, and the church just goes putting along there, never getting anywhere. He needs to be a man of God. He's got to have the time to pray and to study the Word because that's the only way you're going to get a message worth coming to hear on Sunday morning. And I think that's, that's what comes through, Acts chapter 6. The disciples see that. And they recognize they've got to be men of prayer and men of the word. And you put other persons in charge of this. But you don't just pick any old buddy and say, well, anybody can spread food around. No. Because this was a means of demonstrating the love of God and ministering to the people. And it has to be done with the right attitude, with wisdom, with instruction from the Holy Spirit as to how to minister to these people. And so these individuals were chosen who were, you know, we're, we're told in this passage in Acts that they were to be men full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. I know that isn't true of this church, but there are churches in America where they pick the elders. Not, we're not just talking about the deacons here, but they pick the elders according to how much money they have to make sure that they realize they got to keep this church afloat. Well, you know, those churches are going to be dead as a doornail if they're picking their elders only because of their money. Elders need to be picked before, because they are men of God and filled with the Holy Spirit too. And, and you read in Timothy and Titus what the requirements are for elders, but you also find the requirements for deacons. Being a deacon, and by the way, the same is for deaconess. The, the implication is for the deaconess, it's the same. 
these requirements are there and, and, and they must be spiritually met for a church to really be effective. You know, it can't just be, well, let's find somebody who doesn't have anything else to do. Well, who's that, you know, in our society? You, you just can't do that. You have to find those whom God chooses to be the ones to be the elders and to be the deacons of the church. And uh, to me, the message that Jethro, God is giving to, through Jethro to Moses is this same message that God gave to the disciples at this time in the history of the early church. And because they were obedient, and because the disciples continued to focus on prayer and the study of the word, we're told in that seventh verse that God kept adding to the church and the word kept spreading and great numbers of people, even priests, were being drawn into the true fellowship of faith. It's utterly amazing when you, when you think about it. We are too often tempted to deviate from the scriptural pattern of how a church should be put together and how it should run into some modern uh, exec, you know, CEO-oriented type situation where we have all these, uh, this is how a good business functions, and so the church should ape a good business. Baloney. Church needs to function according to scriptural principles, and however businesses function, that's a different story. If it happens to be parallel, well, then the business picked up the right principles. But if not, I don't think the church should follow those principles. That's why, you know, some of these attempts today to portray how a church should grow itself to be doubled or whatever, following principles that aren't specifically outlined in Scripture, are, to me, are rather doubtful. And you wonder if it isn't just forcing something that isn't really going to be blessed of God. Well, Jethro finished his counsel by saying, if this word which I'm giving to you is actually God's word to you, Moses, then you're going to be able to endure. You won't burn out. You'll be able to do what God wants you to do, and the people will find peace. Shalom. And that's what everyone is looking for. Individually and corporately, we're looking for peace in our lives. No matter how difficult our work may be, how busy we may be, we want that ultimate core of peace. And that's what he is talking about here. They'll be able to go back to their tents in peace knowing that the problem has been resolved, the arbitration has been effective, that the whole thing is functioning as God intended it to function. Verse 24 of uh, Exodus 18. So Moses listened to his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. The difficult disputes they would bring to Moses, but every minor dispute they themselves would judge. Then Moses bade his father-in-law farewell, and he went his way into his own land. Notice, it doesn't, we're not told here that Moses hemmed and hawed about the whole thing. He certainly, I'm sure he prayed about it and didn't just say, oh yeah, that's good advice, let me do it right now. But he does accept this advice, I believe, as coming from God. And he chose wise men to be counselors and judges. 
We're told in this passage that he did it. But we're not told in this passage how he did it. Now, how did he get these people? Did he hold interviews? I don't think so, because we're talking about thousands of people here. But we are told how he did it. If we go to the first chapter of Deuteronomy. Moses is kind of reciting the history here in the first chapter of Deuteronomy. And he kind of spells out how he um, set this program up, beginning at verse 9 of chapter 1 of Deuteronomy. And he says, I spoke to you at that time, saying, I'm not able to bear the burden of you alone. Now, this is, of course, this is in response to what Jethro had brought to his attention. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are as the stars of heaven for multitude. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousandfold more than you are and bless you, just as he has promised you. How can I bear alone the load and burden of you and your strife? Choose wise and discerning and experienced men from your tribes, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me and said, The thing which you have said to me, said to do is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and appointed them heads over you, leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties and tens, and officers for your tribes, or of your, for your tribes. Then I charged your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your fellow countrymen, and judge righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen, or the alien who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. So Moses is telling us here, in retrospect, that he put the burden on the selection on the people. He said, you choose from among you the people who fit these parameters, who have these qualities, and then by my authority, I will appoint them. And then he goes on to say, and I will instruct them, and he did instruct them. And he taught them what they were to do in their position. So he kind of ran a big class, if you will, or a series of classes, instructing them on how they were arbitrate, to arbitrate, how they were count, to counsel, and how they were to teach what God had given to Moses to teach to the people. So he didn't go around running interviews and selecting thousands of people, but he allowed the people to do that. And then he instructed them on how to carry out the task that was before them. This was a big job because those who have studied this and have said, okay, we're talking about leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifty, clear down to ten. So there was to be someone for every ten males, meaning them and of course and their families, who was to be the, the arbitrator for that smaller group of people. And you start creating those little cells like that, and then bringing it back up, you're talking about a figure as high as 75,000 individuals, if Israel were at two to two and a half million in population at this time. And not everybody agrees that that's the case, but if, if that was so, we're talking about a very large number of people to form this, this, this hierarchy from Moses on down to the person who was to you know, be the arbitrator for a cell of 10 males and their households. But 
this apparently was relatively effective. And certainly it saved Moses from the unending task of sitting there from sunup to sundown every day listening to all these people. You think after a while his head would be spinning. Haven't I heard this before four times today, you know? It'd almost be like he should get everybody who has the same kind of problem together <laughs> in a small group and say, all right, now all of you are having trouble with your neighbor to the left. Let me talk to the right over here, you know, or whatever. But uh, this was, of course, a, a much more effective means of dealing with the problem. Well, after a stay of possibly several weeks, Jethro returned to Midian. And I think when he returned to Midian, he had a sense that he had had a real encounter with the God of Israel. And that the God of Israel had actually used him to minister to Moses and to the people of Israel. God can use any of us, any time, any place, to accomplish what he wants to do. Be it great or small in the eyes of men and women. This, of course, would be viewed as a great thing, I'm sure. I don't think Jethro went there with the intention uh, that he was going to somehow minister to this leader of Israel. But God used this man. He was a Midianite. The Midianites and the Israelites eventually would be deadly enemies. God used Jethro. And I think Jethro was the better for it. I, I like the term channel of blessing. Know, that, that we are to be channels of blessing. Conduits that God uses to pour His love and His grace and His healing into other people's lives. But we can't be a conduit of blessing if it's all clogged up with junk. And that's why we need to be people of prayer and of the Word and of seeking God's forgiveness in our lives and cleansing to keep that conduit open so that we can be a blessing. And I don't think that Jethro was able to really be that blessing until he had finally come to that place of acknowledging that Yahweh is the only supreme and true God. And all these other gods that I've had to, you know, at least hedge my bet with are non-gods. And then God was able to use this man to minister to Moses and to Israel. Think of Moses. Who did he have to turn to? Who would be Moses' counselor with flesh? He could always go to God, of course. I've had pastors of churches who have said, you know, I've got no one, <laughs> no one to talk to. I can't go to my own people and talk about my own needs. Moses had no one to talk to. And so Jethro became his counselor. Because God so appointed him for that hour to be. Not because he was a professional counselor or a man of Solomonic wisdom, but God used him in that moment. You never know when a word you speak is a word of wisdom meant specifically for someone's heart because God aimed it right there, and you may not even know you said it. <laughs> you know, I've had people say that. You know, you said this and it was real helpful, and I can't remember ever saying it. But God is the one who prepares our hearts to be used to minister to others and other hearts to receive that ministry. I think this helps us to understand that no one is so wise, no one is so godly, no one 
is so important that he does not need the wisdom and counsel of others. No person, no man is an island, as you've heard. No man, no woman is so close to God that they need no advice from any other human being. This is a big problem that some people in Christian leadership face. They have this exalted view of themselves as being so high and so mighty and so close to God that why should I listen to anybody else? I've got the direct ear of God, you know, and God speaks directly to me. Well, we know there's a whole church made up of that kind of attitude where there's one person who is the vicar of Christ and, and he's the one who speaks the mind of God and who's going to tell him anything? Well, it's not too difficult for people in their own individual churches, for pastors and other leaders to get to the place where they think, uh, who, who can advise me or who can instruct me? I hear God alone. I think that's a trap of spiritual pride. And I think that the godliest man can get a word of wisdom from the most humble of persons if those two are prepared by God at that moment for that, that interview, that moment of, uh, of God's touch. We need to pray all the time for the spiritual leadership of our groups, whatever they may be, our church, the para-church organizations. We need to pray for these people that they're humble and that they're willing to listen to wise counsel to those that can help them through the difficulties they face in such a position. I mean, we may not have two and a half million people out there that we have to deal with as Moses did, but two and a half million or 25, it's still a major responsibility that uh, an individual needs God's mind to be able to effectively carry out. And uh, I think Jethro here gives us a wonderful example. In the 19th chapter of Deuteronomy, I mean of Exodus, we're not yet in Deuteronomy, we have the events that lead up to that monumental encounter with Moses, Moses with God on the top of Mount Sinai. It's kind of interesting, God leads him up in kind of a preparatory meeting here in the 19th chapter. God calls Moses up onto the mountain and gives him some initial uh, teaching and reminders and sends him back down the mountain to tell the people. It's kind of like um, you know, pre-law. <laughs> Before we get ready to receive the law, I'm going to instruct the people through Moses. And they need to understand that when Moses goes up that mountain to hear from God, they need to be in anticipation of what God is going to say. Let me read uh, a few verses here, and uh, we won't develop them today, but uh, we'll look at the 19th chapter specifically next week. In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they had set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you 
to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the sons of Israel. God does not call Moses up the mountain to dump the whole load on him first shot. He gives a preparatory declaration for Moses to give to the people to prepare them, to give them anticipation as to what God is going to do here at Mount Sinai. This, this is one of the mightiest events of all history. There's hardly anything in history that compares to the encounter between God and Israel at Mount Sinai. I think there's a slight parallel to this at Pentecost in the New Testament. I kind of think of the Pentecostal experience as described in the book of Acts as kind of a New Testament version of the Sinai mountain experience of Israel there in the wilderness. But this is a very, very important encounter. Many like to say this is the beginning of Judaism as a religion. Well, that's only if you kind of like to compartmentalize everything. Judaism and Christianity, to me, are the faith that were spoken to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Even though the specific rules and many other things were given later on, it's, it's kind of the whole thing just as the God just kind of opens the cornucopia here and you, you start out with a small amount of revelation. As time pass, passes, God just opens the panorama until, of course, today we have the whole panorama from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22 of what God wants to say to his people. And so as we come to Mount Sinai, God is proclaiming another great uh, aspect of his revelation to his people. But it's been there all along. The essential truth is there all along. It was said not too long ago that, you know, the, the New Testament kind of proclaims a different gospel intimated from the Old Testament. I trust you're seeing that's not so, you know. The, the gospel of the New is fully there in the Old. It's just in the New it's made more specific and, and clear. And, and you begin to see the, uh, that which was like uh, a forest now becomes clearly defined as trees. As we move from the, uh, the gospel as it's seen in Genesis and Exodus and all the way through the Old Testament to the fulfillment of it in the, in the New Testament. Jesus Christ, Yahweh God, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I think it's important that we don't compartmentalize him or the faith that he has given to the human race. And as we begin chapter 19 and then into chapter 20, we'll be focusing on the next step of the opening of God's revelation to his people.